If you've ever heard an urban myth about a man living inside the walls of another family's home, you were actually hearing a story that is rooted in a great deal of truth. In 1986, Daniel LaPlante terrorized the Andrews family of Townsend, Massachusetts by making noises from inside their walls and moving things around the house. While this is the best known part of LaPlante's story, it is in fact only the beginning. The entire truth is much more disturbing. Welcome to the Fact and Suspicion podcast. I'm your host, Dan. And I'm your other host, Ben. And tonight we are discussing the case of Daniel LaPlante. So, you know, we've discussed some pretty horrific cases, but there is something particularly unsettling about this one. I mean, there is stalker levels of crazy and then there's living inside of someone's walls yeah this was um i would call it one of the most disturbing cases i know about just because of the links that laplante went to i mean it's hard to say that because he's not you know a prolific murderer or something like that right but he did some weird stuff there's just a creepiness factor to this one that i think some of the other cases we've looked at lack even if they're more horrific. He did some horrific things, too. I'm just saying he didn't do as much on the level of, like, Gacy or Bundy or someone like that. Right, right. right. Or even Israel Keys, but no. But there was there was a lot going on with LaPlante. I mean, he was a very disturbed individual. I think you would assume that from the things he did, but I think it's important to look into his past and, and what he'd gone through to cause all this. He was born in 1970, And from an early age, he was abused by his father. And from what I can understand, he was abused physically, emotionally, and sexually by his father. And then later on, uh, his stepfather physically abused him. And when he was in high school, he actually started seeing a counselor to get some therapy. And his therapist, according to LaPlante, sexually abused him for a year. Wow. Uh, He was sexually abused by his counselor? Yeah. So the one person in his life that was supposed to be helping him outside of his awful home life was sexually assaulting him. Yeah, exactly. So this is someone that, I mean, he had a terrible past, and he had a lot of emotional issues that he had no idea how to deal with. And I'm not saying that in any way justifies anything he did. But it but, could help to explain it. Exactly, right? It, it shows, you know, that this is definitely shows how someone like this can be created, right? Right. I mean, an environment like that would have to be a recipe for horrific acts. Yeah, it was. And like I said, it was a terrible home life. He didn't do well socially in school. He really didn't have many friends. Uh, he also had poor hygiene, from what I understand. You know, sometimes he smelled bad. His hair was always greasy. And he had trouble in school as well. He was dyslexic, and he wasn't really getting any support for that at school. So he was having a lot of trouble keeping up academically as well. So nothing was going well in his life. Did he come from poverty? Yeah, his family was was poor. Uh, I don't know if they were, you know, at what level of poverty they were in. Right. But they 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 were not, you know, they were not living comfortably. So when he uh was 15 or 16, uh, Daniel actually started breaking into people's houses in his neighborhood. 
and uh, he would, you know, steal a few things, but he also did stuff like he would move things around the house just to, to kind of mess with people's minds. He would pour himself a drink and drink part of it and leave it on the counter. Uh, he wasn't covering up any tracks. He, he wanted people to know that, you know, he'd been there. Was there any like sexual element to it? Honestly, we don't know for sure at that point. Uh, later on, we do know there were some sexual elements to things, but at this point, we don't know really. Later on, they were able to determine that he, you know, did secrete some semen on the premises, some of his crimes, but uh, we don't know at this point. Okay. Now, um, famously uh, or infamously, he terrorized the Andrews family, right? So we talked about LaPlante's background a bit, but then you have the Andrews family. You've got Brian Andrews and his two daughters. Uh, they live in Townsend, Massachusetts. It's 1986. And Brian's wife has recently passed away from cancer. And, you know, his daughters aren't doing very well with that. They're, they're, the whole family's having trouble coping with their mother's death. Understand. Mother and wife's death. Yeah. And, um, Annie starts to get calls uh, from some boy she didn't know named Daniel LaPlante. He, uh, he told her that he got her number from a mutual friend and uh, just, just wanted to contact her. But really, police suspect now that the Andrews home was one of the houses he'd actually broken into. And maybe he found a picture of Annie and got sort of obsessed with her and, you know, did some digging, found their phone number, and started to call and talk to her. But at this point, he wasn't making any attempt to cover his identity. I mean, he was—he actually introduced himself. Yeah, yeah, no, he—he he did. He was interested in her, right? And they talked on the phone for a while, and he—he he, he actually um, asked her out on a date, and uh, she agreed. But the thing is, he had described himself as tall and blonde and good-looking, right? Ah, uh, so fake Tinder profiles before Tinder, huh? Yeah, exactly, right? But, you know, actually, he's he's not any of these things. He's sort of short, average height. Uh, he's got dark, greasy hair, bad hygiene, acne, you know? So when she meets him for the date, she she already doesn't really like that, you know? Yeah, I understand. Um, and she felt kind of uneasy about it, but she still went on with the date, right? I mean, it's hard to tell someone that they look like a hideous troll and that this isn't happening. Yeah, well... So as the, the date progressed that night, Daniel found out that Annie's mother had recently died of cancer, and he sort of became a little obsessed with that fact. And he kept asking questions about her illness and how much she suffered and, you know, the grief that Annie had been through and everything like that. Like he seemed to enjoy it, like had some sort of unhealthy fixation on it. Exactly. Yeah. And so Annie left the date at that point. From what I understand, she said that she wasn't very rude about it. She just sort of said she had to get back home, but she did make it clear that she didn't want to see him anymore, right? Seems so, reasonable given the circumstances. I had mentioned earlier that the girls were not dealing very well with their mother's passing. And one night shortly after the date with Daniel, they decided to have a seance try to contact the mother spirit and um, when they did they started hearing knocking you know tapping from the walls and initially they thought that it was their mother trying to contact them right now, how old were they at the time uh annie was 15 and jessica was eight okay so 
they they think it's their mother, but this sort of progresses and the tapping just gets, you know, worse and worse over the following days and it's keeping them up at nights and they start seeing things move around the house. And at this point they think that instead of, you know, contacting their mother, they've contacted some sort of evil Demon spirit, or something. right? And they tell their dad about it. Their dad doesn't really believe them that all this is going on. He thinks this is just another aspect of them not dealing well with their mother's passing. He thinks maybe they're just projecting all of this and, and you know, needing attention, needing help. It makes sense. I mean, I can understand why he would think that. And, you know, exactly. What I mean, what would you think, right? I mean, it's certainly more plausible than an evil spirit. Exactly. You know, who who would believe in that? He listens, but he doesn't do anything about it. And one afternoon while dad's off at work, the uh, noise is really bad. The tapping. And they hear that it sounds like it's coming from the basement. So the girls decide to be brave and go down to the basement to check it out. And uh, all the articles I read actually say, you know, they take a big kitchen knife with them, even though that's so just like in every horror movie, right? Right. (laughs) But they take a big kitchen knife and they go down to the basement and written on the wall in the basement, blood red, are the words, I'm in your room, come and find me. Speaking of things that are right out of a horror movie, dear Lord. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how many horror movies are actually sort of based on this. Right. That's a good question. And if you're wondering, later on, the police do determine that it was written in ketchup. Okay. It wasn't really blood or anything. But the girls are terrified. They run out of the house. They go over to the neighbor's house. They call their dad, tell him to come home. He comes back, and he, he still thinks that this is the girls doing all of this you know, as a, as a cry for help. And he says, I'm going to get you into therapy. We're going to take care of this. And the girls, you know, they're like, dad, this is real. And, and he thinks it's just a cry for help. Right. And then he comes home and sees the, the ketchup on the walls. No, he thinks they actually wrote it. Oh, okay. I see At all of this, you know, so, so things go back to, I, I, I hate to say normal, but they go back to the regular pace of things. God, that's the horrible, moving man. things around the house, the tapping. I don't know how the girls stood it because they had to be terrified, right? Right. I mean, hell, I'm not a 12 year old girl, and that would terrify me. And then to have their father not believe them, I can't imagine what those girls were going through. I mean, that would be horrible. I would be terrified myself. But the things are still happening. Things are being moved around the house, the tapping on the walls. The girls are losing their minds because the tapping is keeping them up all night. It just keeps tap, tap, tapping, right? So another uh, evening, the dad's at work. The same sort of thing happens, except this time the girls hear the sound coming from upstairs around Annie's room. So they do the same thing. They try to be brave. They get their kitchen knife. And they go upstairs. And when they get up there, there's another message on the wall next to Annie's door. And it says, I'm back. Find me if you can. So just like last time, the girls run out of the house. They go to their neighbor's house. They call their dad to come home. And he still thinks he still thinks his girls are just imagining all this, creating this in their own minds. Because he knows the house isn't haunted. But he says, I'm going to go check all this out. He goes in the house and stuff's really moved around a lot. He really gets the sense that the girls are not lying once he goes in the house this time. It's about time. So he goes upstairs to Annie's room to check on everything. When he goes in the room, the first thing he sees, I should say that some of these details differ depending on the article because this particular story has become so 
infamous and so big in the telling, you get different details. Now, some details say that this message that I'm about to tell you about, he saw in the living room when he walked in, but most articles will say it was on the wall in Annie's room. He goes in and on the wall in blood red, he sees a message that says, marry me. And when he looks around in the room, that's not the only thing that's there. There is Daniel LaPlante over in the corner. He's wearing one of their mother's dresses, makeup, and a blonde wig, and he's holding a hatchet. I mean, that is just, that is next level creepy. It really is. I, mean, I, don't even know what to, I don't even know what I'm supposed to say to that. You know, a lot of people think that he was dressed as the mother, and they don't know if he was planning to kill the girls or just to make them think that it was the ghost of their mother and keep terrifying That's them. That's certainly what it sounds like. like. He seemed like he really got off on terrorizing them or, and making them think they were going crazy. Exactly. But, you know, the dad walks in there. So apparently the two have a struggle and the dad gets away and, you know, the, the cops finally show up. They go in and they search the house and there's a cupboard built into the wall of Annie's room. And there's a crawl space behind it. And they look at that crawl space and there is 16 year old Daniel LaPlante. And they find a sleeping bag in there and like some garbage of stuff he's been eating. There's empty beer cans. Oh, um, and you know, one of the cops actually, they says, you know, he could have been there for a month, but we don't know that he was actually there for that long. We don't know that he was there the whole time. Uh, that's something that people say is he was living in there for two months. Right. But it we may can't not have actually been consecutive. It may have been consecutive. He may have been in there off and on, and it may not have actually been two months. We don't know exactly when it started. Because Annie doesn't remember the exact date, right? So that was just some sort of offhand comment made by one of the officers? Right. It could have just been a couple weeks, you know, off and on. I mean, does it really matter? I mean, any length of time living in someone's walls, doing the things oh, he was doing, I mean. It's still absolutely insane. I just thought I should point that out, right? right. We don't know that he actually lived in the walls for two months straight. He was probably still off doing some random burglaries and, you know, doing something to make money to buy his beer and whatnot. Right. Right. But anyway, they, they find him there and, um, they put him into a juvenile facility and this is where things get kind of strange. They're, they're able to hold him. This in the is where things facility. get strange. Well, I shouldn't say strange. It's not strange. It's just things go a bit awry here because he's, they're holding him in a juvenile facility because obviously this, this kid's troubled, right? Yeah, I would say that's a fair statement. Because of the seriousness of some of his crimes, he's broken into several houses and stolen things. And then the way he terrorized this family, they want to try him as an adult. So in October of 1987 is when they determined they will try him as an adult. Well, he was 17 at the time. He, he was 16 at the time. 16. He was still 16. But they decided to try him as an adult. And this causes a, a strange problem here because they were able to hold him in a juvenile facility, but when he is going to be tried as an adult, they have to allow him to post bail, which he did. Ah, I see. So he got out. That doesn't and sound good. No, this is the worst thing that could have happened because he gets out in October. In November, he breaks into another neighbor's home and he steals two handguns. I don't and like where this is going. No, no, you don't. December 1st, he goes to the Gustafson house, which is about a half mile from his own house. And he murders Priscilla, who is the mother. 
She's a teacher and she's actually pregnant at the time. He rapes and murders her. And he murders her two children as well. It's seven-year-old Abigail and five-year-old William. It's just heartbreaking that this happened because, you know, obviously authorities knew that he was troubled and a bit dangerous, but they had to allow him to post bail. Right. And and then this happened, right? Did he know Priscilla? Was she his teacher? No, she actually was a, a, from what I read, it was sort of a a church nursery school. Mm Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think she was ever his teacher. He may have known her just from around the neighborhood. Right. Uh, but, you know, her husband was at work, so he probably knew that the husband was away and he had an opportunity to do this. But he didn't have any particular connection to her? No, no particular connection. And then he also, he actually stole some things from their home as well. He took a cable box and a cordless telephone, which is kind of a kind of a thing that he's taken from other houses. So... Immediately, police think, for one, because of the things he just did at the Andrews home and got out of jail, that automatically ma- makes him a suspect, right? Right. But also because he stole a couple things, uh, he's been doing stuff like that around town anyway, right? So they, they automatically think that he is a, definitely a suspect in this case. Yeah, I mean, no question. So the murder took place on December 1st. On the 2nd, they uh, find him at the public library and question him about it. And he denied, you know, any involvement, right? Obviously. Yeah, of course. Well, later that day, they decide to go to his home to ask a few more questions. And when they're walking up to his house, he's on the front porch. He sees them and he runs into the woods. And, you know, obviously at that point, police are pretty sure he committed the murder. So he's got something to hide. Right. right? Why else run? Right. So um, they're able to get a search warrant at this point, And they find some, they find some really hard evidence. Uh, that I'll get into in just a few minutes. But while he's on the run, he he runs out in the woods and he he runs. He actually abducts a woman at gunpoint and forces her to drive him in her Volkswagen van. Sort of tried to get out of town, I guess, right? And he was probably going to murder this woman as well, but she managed to get away from him. But he still had her van, so he he was still driving the van. And they don't know exactly where he is, but they are able to find him the next day on December 3rd. They, they found him in a dumpster at a lumber yard. And, uh, you know how you far know, away that was? Like how far he'd gotten? He was still in town. So apparently he wasn't trying to go too far. Did they have the roads closed down or something? I mean, were, were they actively they, looking for him at this point? Oh, they Surely. were very actively okay. looking for him. So he, he probably wasn't able to get through roadblocks right, and stuff. Right. Uh, but the police actually reported that he was laughing when they arrested him, just like this maniacal laugh. Which, that is consistent with the insanity we've heard thus far. So, but I should, you know, discuss a bit of the evidence because they had this case pretty well wrapped up. He murdered Priscilla with a, a 22 caliber handgun, and they found a bullet casing in his home that uh, matched the two found at the Gustafson home. The actual gun that Priscilla was murdered with was found on the LaPlante property as well. There was an old Jeep in their yard. I think it was just a junk one that no one drove anymore, but it was found in the glove compartment of that Jeep. Had he stashed it there? Yeah, assumingly he he just sort of hidden it there. Okay. And uh, that was one of the two guns that he stole in that break-in in November as well. Gotcha. The police also found the cable box that was stolen from the Gustafson house and the cordless telephone at Daniel's house. And one of Daniel's fingerprints was on the cordless phone. 
They also found a sock at Daniel LaPlante's house and it had saliva on it. And they believe that that had been used to gag Priscilla. Another one of LaPlante's socks actually had one of Abigail's hairs on it. So the evidence is stacking up pretty solidly against him. Oh, it's very solid evidence. And uh, they also um, did a, a blood test on Daniel. And even though DNA is just just starting out, DNA technology at this point, right? They did determine that he was a type A secretor. And that matched a uh, semen stain that was found at the Gustafson home. Right. Type A secretor, that's when... Uh, doesn't that mean that your blood type can be determined by uh, like bodily fluids? Yeah, that, that's exactly what it means. It, it means they were able to, to match his blood type from his semen, his type A blood. Okay. So, yeah, they have a ton of very solid evidence. I mean, it seems overwhelming at this point. And um, he pleads not guilty, but he's found guilty. And he is sentenced to three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. Out of curiosity, at his trial... Uh, do you know whether or not prosecutors were allowed to bring in evidence of his past crimes, like, you know, the creepiness with the walls, for example? Well, he was on trial for multiple things, and, and that was one of them. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, I got you. So it wasn't just for the murders, as far as I can understand. He had been charged with several things. All right. Though, I'm not sure how that worked. As far as I know, he was only sentenced to three life terms, though. he I don't think he had any additional time for the other things. I mean, it's understandable um, that the evidence was so overwhelming in the murders that and they were yeah, going to be able to send him away for life already anyway. So Exactly. They, they didn't need to try him for anything else, and they had rock-solid evidence. So what did that matter? Right. That's not the complete end of the story, though. Daniel actually appealed in 1993 uh, on a couple different things. Mostly it was because of the search warrant. His attorney claimed that the search warrant should have never been issued. Uh, and there was a little bit of uh, trouble with it because it identified the LaPlante home as a single family dwelling. And I, I've really I've read some trial transcripts, but I cannot figure out exactly why they say it wasn't a single family dwelling. I don't know if another family lived there. I think his adult brother lived there. That may be what they were talking about. But either way, the goal was to suppress the evidence gained from the search warrant, right? Exactly. They wanted to get a new trial, but obviously they were denied that. Just because, according to the judge, the police actually did their due diligence. Uh, there was only one driveway. There's only one mailbox. There's only one entrance into the home. Right. Right. Uh, so but for all intents and purposes, it seemed to be a single family dwelling. I mean, that sounds like the defense was grasping at straws there. They, they really seem to be grasping. And, you know, usually when they suppress a search warrant like that, it's either because something illegal happened to attain the search warrant right. or because something small was wrong and the evidence they found was circumstantial. But in this case, it was very solid evidence they found. And, you know, obviously there's nothing wrong. It's just a, a little problem with the paperwork, apparently, right? So trying to use a, sm a small technicality in the paperwork to invalidate the horribly incriminating evidence they found against him? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. 
Um, also, uh, his lawyer did bring up the fact that in the first trial, the judge did not instruct the jury that Daniel could have been insane at the time, but his defense attorney at the time was not pursuing an insanity defense. Then why would he instruct the jury that that was a possibility? Yeah, it doesn't make sense, but you know, it's, it's, it's an attempted appeal, right? Uh, but he lost his appeal and there were some other things too. In 2000, he actually requested uh, to be put into protective custody in prison uh, because he felt like he was in danger from the other inmates because of, you know, the hurting children, infamous nature of his crimes and he murdered children and things like that. Right. Right. So he, he was put into like sort of a solitary confinement and then he sued because they were denying him access to the library. Really? Yeah. And um, I think I read he actually won $450 in that settlement. <laughs> so he requested to be put in solitary confinement for his own protection and then sued because he couldn't go to the library. Exactly. Yeah. Then in 2013, there was another issue. Um, he said that he wasn't being allowed to practice his religion in a fitting manner. What religion uh, was that exactly? He, he said he, had, uh, he was Wiccan. Uh, and he needed to be provided with certain special materials. What do you want him to grow him a tree inside of his cell? I really, I don't know. I don't know what he was expecting, but it's, maybe it's just something to raise a fuss about, right? But then he did have another appeal in 2017, and uh, this was a this was actually kind of interesting because the Supreme Court had recently ruled that juveniles cannot be sentenced to life without parole. So he wanted his sentence to be changed from three life sentences to be carried out consecutively to three life sentences to be served concurrently. And that would have made him eligible for parole immediately in 2017 instead of in 2032, when he would have had to serve 15 years for each life sentence at that point, and he would be eligible in 2032. But um, he lost that appeal as well. Did the uh, law actually, apply retroactively? It, it did, yeah. So no one that had been sentenced as a juvenile to life without parole, you know, th they had to be, uh, they had to become eligible for parole after 15 years of a life sentence. Okay. Now he, he did lose the appeal, though. He, he actually apologized publicly uh, during that appeal, and a lot of people say that it sounded insincere. And I watched it on YouTube. But I can't say that I feel like it necessarily sounded insincere because, you know, anytime in court when you read a statement, it doesn't sound great, right? Right. But I, I don't know. I'm not saying that it was sincere either. He, he probably just wants out of jail. Now, the judge pointed out when she uh, denied this appeal that this was not just one crime that caused three deaths. He committed three individual murders at this point. So she felt that he should have to serve the minimum 15 years for all three of them. So she officially resentenced him so that his three life sentences would be carried out consecutively so that he definitely will not be eligible for parole until 2032. So was that the end of his appeals that you know of? Yeah, that's, that's the end of everything to date. And when will he be eligible for parole? Uh, in 2032. So 11 years. And how long has he been in prison now? He's been in prison for 34 years at this point. Well, hopefully he'll stay there. You know, in general, 
I don't particularly care for the notion of juveniles being sentenced for life, but he killed three people. And considering the creepy things he did before, I mean, it's probably best if this guy never gets out of prison. I, I completely agree. And, and you, I also agree about juveniles not being sentenced to life, but you, you have different circumstances, right? A, a lot of times, you know, when that happens to a young person like that, they did something stupid. Maybe, you know, they were trying to rob a store or something and accidentally shot someone, something like that. Right. And, you know, while that's still, like, I don't want to defend their actions, it was just like, a dumb thing they did. This was someone that did something very deliberate. Yeah, the, the crime you're talking about, that seems like something you could be rehabilitated for, though, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't know where you would begin a rehabilitation process for someone like Daniel LaPlante. No, and I, I don't think you really can. Uh, I know you and I talk a lot about how our criminal justice system should function in a way more that helps people be re- rehabilitated. Right. But it also needs to function in a way that someone that is this dangerous, you know, we're protected from them. Right. As well. I mean, that, that has to be the major, that, that has to be the primary function, protecting society. I mean, rehabilitation has to be a secondary goal and only yeah, for those exactly. people who can be rehabilitated. Right. And, and with someone like this, that, you know, you have him just terrorizing a family and not just that one family, you know, these other people's houses he broke into, he would just move things around and stuff just to mess with them. Right. right? Like his behavior is so far outside of, of the norm that it just seems like, I mean, a rehabilitation program would be wasted on him. I would never feel safe with someone like Daniel LaPlante walking around free. No, I wouldn't either. And imagine the Andrews family, right? I'm not sure you know, where they are now, what they're doing, you know, if the dad's still alive at this point. But, you know, Annie especially, you know, if, if he could find her when he was released, I would be terrified if I was Annie. Yeah, of course. I mean, I have issues with the type of retributive justice system that we have. But, I mean, this is not one of the cases that bothers me, right? I won't be losing any sleep over Daniel LaPlante rotting in prison. No, it, it honestly bothers me that that someone like this will be eligible, eligible for parole. <laughs> I doubt he'll get it. And hopefully one of his victims or a family member will be there to ensure he stays where he belongs. Right. I, I hope so. You know, also with the fact that so many people felt that he was so insincere in his apology in 2017, if he can't improve on that, I don't think anyone's going to grant him parole. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree. So is is that pretty much it for the for the Daniel Plant case? I mean, is there? Uh, you said as far as you know, that's all for his appeal history. Uh, anything else notable? No, nothing else really notable in this one. Uh, I've looked for news articles, and I can't find any any other news articles about any appeals past that 2017 appeal. All right. Well, I guess we'll just leave it there then. While this case is particularly intriguing, it's important to remember that. Three innocent people were murdered. Even though LaPlante is likely still a danger to society, I don't disagree that juveniles shouldn't be sentenced to life without parole. Our criminal justice system should work to rehabilitate, especially in the case of young offenders. LaPlante was a very troubled young man who had suffered a great deal of trauma, but this absolutely does not erase his horrendous actions. And I'm concerned that if he is paroled in 2032, that
that he may indeed kill again. 